0: Hello, and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast here in fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm Dave Anderson, your host, Mike Nunez. Our regular host is out on paternity. With me today, I have- William Jeffries. And also a triumphant return of our very special guest.
1: Sumana Harihareshwara.
0: Yeah, and today we're going to be talking about art and programming. So yeah, why don't you tell the people about a little bit about yourself, Sumana?
1: So. I am a project manager and a consultant. I run a tiny consultancy called Change Set Consulting, focusing on project management in open source. But also, I am a stand-up comedian. I have written a tiny bit of fan fiction and done a tiny (laughs) bit of fan vidding. and, And I've played around with a variety of other art forms. And starting a few years ago, I started bringing some of those... To tech conferences,
0: so I'm making some jokes about programming.
1: So I have done some stand-up at tech conferences, and then I've also just brought things that I know from my stand-up comedy experience into standard tech conference talks. Mm. Right? Do you both speak at tech conferences? I mean, so you're doing a tutorial, right, at this year's PyCon North America?
0: Yeah, I, I really feel like I should include some some kind of joke in that t- three hour span that I'll be. Educating people, a joke, just one, like an uh,
1: oasis somewhere.
0: <laughs> a great joke around has, the two-hour mark. Yeah, like uh, is your entire tutorial is your joke in advance? i will be like, there's gonna be a joke somewhere.
1: Is your entire tutorial a shaggy dog joke?
0: <laughs> I don't know what that means.
1: A shaggy dog joke is a term for an extremely long winding story that ends with a usually unsatisfying to the listener punchline.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going for. <laughs> but William, William's also uh, spoken at conferences as well.
2: Yeah, I haven't spoken in a while. I did do several conferences. I did Liberty JS down in Philadelphia, did RailsConf one year when it was in Atlanta, I think. It's just, you know, it's hard to find the time. Hard to find the time when you're also working full-time doing software development. Yeah, just crushing it.
1: I would say making the time to do a good talk absolutely. One if you actually have taste in the matter,
2: that's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> I have taste in the matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't go and give a bad conference talk, and it's going to take me weeks of preparation. How does it make you feel? How
1: does it make you feel to think about giving a bad talk?
2: oh man shame and disappointment i think <laughs> right. be the dominant emotions there <laughs> just unpacking that feeling oh, yeah
1: <laughs> and you feel like you've wasted your own time your possibly your employer's time the time of the people in there your reputation is a bit stained you
0: know your parents as well shame mm. shame upon your household your no hometown love you.
1: right your guidance counselor like just shakes their head sadly right. like (laughs) whoever
0: most likely to give adequate talk at conference
1: (laughs) (laughs) so starting from the time that i was very young i started doing public speaking because my family had a lot of events at the home at the conferences that they put on
2: this doesn't surprise me at all you seem like a public speaker thank
1: you (laughs) i seem like a a podcast guest perhaps (laughs) yeah and so I not for President. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't think I should be president of the United States because my spouse would not be able to handle it. <laughs> it's a very stressful job. Yeah, it's a that's really fine. yeah. That's <laughs> and so I think that having a lot of, you know, training, as it were, in public speaking is something that I sort of started taking for granted. But then you see it's a it's a hard thing. And being able to Prepare what you're going to say and say it without feeling really nervous about being in front of a lot of people, and make it seem possibly effortless. I think some people think that good public speakers make it look effortless. That's a that's a whole skill set. And you look at people who have been coding since the time they're their kids. They might also forget all the stuff that they learned back when they were just playing in a sandbox, right? Oh yeah. When yeah. I was when I was you know seven years old or something. And my parents had a bunch of my aunties and uncles over, and they said, Okay, so I'm gonna write a poem and then read it aloud to everybody at the end of the night. Right? I was just playing in a sandbox because it's not like I was gonna get a bad review on the front page of the New York Times <laughs> for my freaking Thanksgiving <laughs> poem, you know. And similarly, you know, when you're six years old, if you're playing with basic on the like 286. <laughs> that your family got you know it's completely fine no one's going to yeah. criticize you on github for do, that do
0: beep loop no one's going to criticize you for that
1: <laughs> so, so you know so giving uh one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children your employees anybody that you have power over is some time and some space to do stuff that doesn't matter Right? Mm-hmm.
2: That's good, I like that. Yeah, time yeah. and space to do something that doesn't matter.
1: So that, because it's only when something doesn't actually, doesn't doesn't matter to the external world that you can really play and learn.
0: Right, having that safe space.
1: Having a safe space. So and I got a lot the, of that.
0: the attitude from. to learn from failure.
1: Right, so I got a lot of that. For and values. so I, yeah, I, am, I was already a practiced public speaker with that, with high school speech and debate, with acting in plays, all that kind of stuff. By the time that I entered the tech industry, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I did a little bit of stand-up here and there. And then I started actually speaking at tech conferences. What is it? 10 plus years ago. And then I got to where I could give a pretty good talk, right? I gave a talk called HTTP Can Do That at PyCon North America a few years ago. There were people who came to that talk multiple times. Like they came and saw me give it at one conference and at another conference just because they enjoyed how well I had done it. And it was mm. fun and entertaining, edifying. That feels to me like, okay, I can give a good technical talk. And so I wanted to explore what else can you do with this thing when you have a stage and a bunch of people and a room where the lights go down a bit. Well, we have in tech conferences, this habit of inheriting from the class academia. Which is to say, lectures, and mm-hmm. inheriting from the class industry, which is to say, demos, and you know some some tasting and, <laughs> and, and live coding, right? From academia, you get the lectures and you get panels, and then from industry, you get demos and you get live coding and you get some amount of the hands-on workshop stuff. But we have this other tradition we could also inherit from that's thousands of years old, which is called theater, which gets across different things Mm -hmm. right what are some of the sessions at conferences that you've found most stay with you
2: i think they're the ones that were given by the most powerful orators. it has a lot less to do with the content and a lot more to do with the delivery like the sandy metz talks i think in particular are a really good example of that because she clearly workshopped those for months and she talks about this all the preparation that went into those and all of the care that she took in crafting the phrases and the transitions, it's very clear that somebody took the time to invest in in presentation. And that makes the whole thing m- not just more digestible, but more memorable in the long term. It's so a
1: medium. Speaking is a medium that rewards attention to the affordances, the user experience affordances of that medium.
2: I like the uh, multiple inheritance metaphor here. And I think it makes sense to bring in a a theater module. How How do we do more of that? How do we get more conferences to embrace that?
1: I am doing my bit. So what I did first was I started thinking about what are some stories, some wisdom, some experience that would be great to share in a fictional narrative format. And by the way, I want to make clear, it's not like I'm absolutely the first person to ever think of tell stories at conferences, right? I think a lot of people would say that the most memorable sessions that they've attended at tech conferences were ones where there was a story, someone telling their war stories, giving a narrative, something like that. But usually-
0: Right. Something that you can like put yourself in those shoes and kind of like carry you through.
1: Mm -hmm. Usually it is a person narrating- true facts from their life or walking you through a composite story as sort of a thin skeleton to hang on to sort of a a composite case study that they're illustrating with, you know, code chunks or something like that. The idea of actually seeing people act out the story in, you know, a theatrical way is not something I think I had seen before. As you know main stage at a tech conference so one of the things that theater is really good at is helping us experience emotion and put ourselves in the shoes of people going through something
0: yeah i I saw your uh talk at Pai yatham last year or i'm I'm using the word talk but really it it was a series of small plays and when you explained it to me i was I was a bit dumbfounded I was like, oh you can do that that seems like a there should there's like a rule or something. <laughs> you're not supposed to do that, to so have like a, a bunch of uh, small collaborative pieces that you're you're doing with people.
1: Well, so I should explain that <coughs> PyGotham 2017 was the first time that I did a play. So I came up with an idea and I collaborated with Jason Owen, who I met in 2017. And he uh, worked with me on the play and he was my co-star. And this was the play Code Review Forward and Back. And that was five different scenarios of how code review can work in an organization with different code review approaches, different code review cultures, and how the future of that team of that org might play out according to the code review approach that you just saw. So it's a little, a lot like the movie Run, Lola, Run.
0: Like one could do a talk about those scenarios. Yeah. Like you could have some bullet points. Mm-hmm. And some cat pictures. And maybe. I'm sure
1: some people have there's been a yeah, bunch yeah. of talks, probably very good ones, about how to do better code review.
0: Yeah. The format for that topic is is interesting because it really puts you more in the shoes. Like you get to see mm-hmm. the practice of of that and how the conversation might play out. And you, how the emotions
1: yes. and, come through. And it's very important. It was very important to me and to Jason and to our director. We hired a director. It's a play. If you want it to be good, you you hire a director. It was very important to us that every single person in all of these scenarios have good reasons for doing the things they're doing, even when they turn out wrong. Because in real life, we have good reasons, right? For being too nitpicky, for getting too caught up in committees and policy, for being too move fast and break things, for giving mm-hmm. other people too much freedom and autonomy and not keeping a close enough eye on what they're doing. All these mistakes that we end up making are generally for good reason. We think that, oh, well, this is going to help with developer experience or this is going to help make sure we're all on the same page or whatever, right? We have reasons for these things. And so saying those things and hearing the rationale and then seeing what comes out of it and seeing how a junior developer is probably going to go, someone who's new, of course they go along. Of course they don't fight back immediately because they don't know to do that and they don't have enough confidence to do that. And they might completely buy in to the reasoning, right? But then you see how developers get hurt or get bored or get scared or get angry. And uh, we got feedback from people saying things like, oh, I used to be that reviewer and I'm trying not to be him anymore. Or a friend of mine just texted me and said that his manager said, this is the best resource on code review I've Ever seen because it actually shows you what the bad ways look like.
0: Like your point before about like how everyone has their own internal motivations yeah. and nobody's a bad guy. They're they're their own like tragic hero. It's it's their flaw that's going to lead them to their demise, maybe
1: mm. or or not. I, we all have reasons for the things we're doing. Absolutely, motivation. Right. That's saying what's my motivation. Yeah.
2: Mm, yeah, and that is a really interesting application of storytelling as a medium for teaching. Mm-hmm. I think there are probably a number of lessons in software development that get told with other mediums that would be better served by theater. I'm just thinking yeah. of pair programming, for example. Oh,
1: absolutely. All the different ways that you can do <laughs> pair
2: programming, wrong. I don't know. I think that's one of the,
0: the strengths of a conference like PyCon in the US, that they do encourage experimentation and variety they have talks the talks are great like there's opportunities for people of all levels to speak they are also willing to take a chance on you know just providing the space for open spaces and yeah. people to use the space for whatever they want it to be we we still need to do a podcast episode on open spaces because that's something that i i really like and i was very surprised that they had this out there but you know you just slap a, a card on the board and a time slot in a room and you, just, you go and do it. And I think that's part of the surprise and joy of like, oh, okay, like a conference can be this too. And a conference can be art.
1: I absolutely want to see what we can do with conferences. If you think about it, a conference is a tool, right? It's a framework and it has different affordances that we can use in different ways. I think that the art of Python itself is being an arts festival, its own kind of thing, its own kind of tool to call something a conference versus to call something an arts festival provokes different responses, helps people think in different ways about what kind of experience they're going to have, what kind of experience they could make within that framework. And what kinds of stories can we tell and what kinds of knowledge and format are we supposed to be sharing with each other, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think what's what's
0: the best way to convey an idea?
1: Right, and like and even what kinds of ideas are being conveyed, right? I have a whole be in my bonnet about what stories, what tropes we use and don't use, tell and don't tell in art about programming, not just computer-generated art or something. When I talk about programming and art, often the place that a lot of people's minds go is you know, make a neural network or Markov <laughs> chains or something like that.
0: I, I think that's what I said. when yeah, I, I, know. I, I said, that, Oh yeah. Like let's make a neural network that will write us a sonnet. I was, I was pretty surprised that I felt that snow crash kind of rang true in a lot the of book? ways. The book snow crash. Well,
1: uh, Neil Stephenson has programmed.
0: <laughs> i guess that makes sense but i mean like just in terms of the the possibility space of the future from the perspective of someone who i, I like i didn't realize it was written in the 90s i read it like a couple years ago mm-hmm. yeah late bloomer.
1: there are ways in which snow crash has actually held up yeah Snow Crash, Cryptonomicon, uh, There's some Werner Vinga, I don't know how to say his last name, like Fire upon the Deep and A Deepness in the Sky. Ken Liu is a programmer, lawyer, sci fi author, translator. So his work has some really realistic programming stuff in it. There nice. is a fanfic author whose name I don't know who wrote this Harry Potter fanfic that is extremely not safe for work called Amends or Truth and Reconciliation. It yeah, a,
0: a lot of good written, written art, it seems, is a trend. There's a, there's an overlap of typing in this. But <laughs> <diagram>. <laughs> well,
1: but then again, I mean, there's also a tremendous amount of fiction that is very unrealistic about programming, right? I want to talk a little bit about two visual media pieces that are in some sense realistic. One of them is Halt and Catch Fire, and the other is the movie Antitrust.
0: I've watched a bit of Halt and Catch Fire, but I've not... I've not
2: watched any Antitrust. I'm not familiar with either.
1: Okay. Antitrust is about 20 years old, has Ryan Felipe, and it has Tim Robbins basically playing Bill Gates. And it isn't realistic in the most precise sense of the word. It isn't realistic in the most precise sense of the word, but it actually gets something right about the interplay between open source and proprietary software and the idea that the people who make proprietary software would really like to be able to hire and exploit the people who make open source. So there's a sense in which the big sweep of it is right on a thing that Hollywood almost never talks about. And yeah, that kind of
0: happened, right? Like, you know, a lot of the the big contributors to Python, the core contributors and, you know, other major libraries, you know, got kind of scooped up by the 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 big four tech companies.
1: There is a lot that is true in what you say. Also, I would say that Antitrust has a a kind of an interesting critique of Microsoft specifically in the way that it has all these sort of media tie-ins and partnerships so that at the time, it seemed like a really big, huge concern that if you wanted to criticize Microsoft in the mass media, maybe you wouldn't be able to do that because of things like MSNBC.
0: Right. Although- And, you know, it was 1998 or whatever. So Windows 98 was- Fresh in everybody's minds.
1: Sure. But Halt and Catch Fire is actually realistic on some other stuff. So it, it is a historical, right? It's a period piece. And it talks about the tech industry of the 80s and 90s. And I would say, okay, of course, yes, there's things that are realistic specifically about, you know, hardware or what software was doing at the time. But also, there's a particular arc And I really don't want to engage too much in spoilers because I think people who are listening to this might very much want to watch all 40 episodes, right? But I think there's a thing that is true. So all of us here in this room have spent several years now, right? Working in the tech industry. I think there's a thing that people just starting out can't know viscerally the way that we know, which is the fact that if you stay long enough... It's very likely that the people that you currently work with, you know, you're going to change configurations, Mm -hmm. right? Whoever you're working with today, maybe two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, at some point, one of you is going to be working for the other. Mm -hmm. At another point, it'll be reversed. At another point, one of you, you know, like...
0: These are the season breaks of our lives. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like, I might be your investor. And then like five years later, you're going to be my boss. And then five years later, we're competitors. Yeah, and five years later, you know, it's a
0: very small world.
1: It is, and our relationships we bring to every successive relationship, whatever both bonds and baggage comes from the past ones, right?
0: That that's what I've heard. Like, makes that particularly like a, a pretty good show. Like, it's character character driven as much as it is like about the history and the actual technology.
1: I would say there's also this fact that shows up in. Halt and catch fire, again, over the sweep of it, which is, you know, year one, if you start as a programmer, you think, oh, I can maybe keep my head down and write code. But if you don't pay attention to interpersonal stuff at your company, intrapersonal stuff within you, the larger economic, social context, organizational side, it's not just, oh, you might get laid off. It's It could be almost worse than that, which is that the code you write won't ever get used, won't ship, won't matter. You might write really elegant, beautiful things that no one will ever use that will never make anyone's life easier.
0: That's like the uh, island of unloved toys or something. It's waste. (laughs) And waste (laughs) waste.
1: waste is just an utter, utter sin. Do not want yeah. No way. So the, the stories that I would love to see, you know, I like that fact about Haunt and Catch Fire, but yeah, I've never seen any major show ever actually show what pair programming is like. I've never seen a movie that talked about the amazingness of you architect something right so that then when you need to change it and add one new thing, you did it in a modular way. So it was easy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I guess that'll that'll be the rabbit hole TV show. Just be paraprogramming all the time. I don't know how we make it sexy enough for
2: TV. Can we make some explosions? (laughs) Yes, yes.
1: I think if you attend to the emotions, that's how you add the stakes. I mean, when we say that we want to make something telegenic, we mean how do you engage the viewer, right? And I think attending to the emotional valence of what's happening is what's key
2: yeah i mean that's kind of it's a creative
0: challenge it is but i mean
1: that's what humans do right
0: and and like i we haven't talked about silicon valley at all but like the there is a lot of truth in the interactions in that show Mm -hmm. that people either enjoy or it's too much for them and so they back (laughs) off and Mm -hmm. they don't watch it but yeah it's 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 the authenticity you would say
1: that the reason why people stop watching silicon valley is because it hurts too good (laughs) (laughs) i've talked to
2: too many people who have said that there are times when it hits a little too close to home and it makes me do a little too much self-examining and i need a break yeah that
1: is the first thing you anyone's ever said that makes me want to watch silicon valley
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) up until
1: now i just like it has its
0: own flaws like it's a loop it's a loop every time i only saw season uh, one so
1: oh you mean it's like a sitcom where it just resets to zero every season
0: not completely zero, but you know zero plus one, or mm-hmm. you know, right? Or you know, it's it's incremental. They're iterations, but yeah, it's 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 interesting.
1: Music. One of the things I wanted to mention was how, for a lot of us, the way that we imbibe popular culture that is about feelings is through music. Mm, yeah. Right? So, I was talking with some people about, like, what music speaks to you about programming. And so, there's bits... There's sort of a division between explicit and implicit. There's music where the lyrics are explicitly about programming.
0: Like Jonathan Colton.
1: Like the one song by Jonathan Colton, Code Monkey, <laughs> that has anything to do with programming. Almost all the rest of his of is, you know, it's about being a nerd, but it's not about programming. Yeah, that's true. And there's MC Frontalot, which has some. The nerdcore hip-hop artist barcelona a very little known sort of new wave band electronica band that they have a bunch of songs about programming early internet type stuff there's i'm sure a zillion like indie bands that i don't know about yeah ha-
0: pinback has a couple of songs about like network adapters or something i don't know it's very obtuse though <laughs>
1: <laughs> right yeah
0: but i don't know i think a lot of people when they program probably don't listen to that like well, to get amped up like they probably listen to the ebms
1: Right. So the, the second, like the flip is music that's implicitly that reflects our feelings in some way about programming. And I was talking to my friend Paul Morris, who said that Radiohead, a lot of Radiohead songs for him have, it's not just that they're kind of droney, it's that they imitate for him the getting into a rut of debugging, where mm-hmm. it's like the world, your focus, even your visual field narrows. Right. Until maybe suddenly, even in the middle of a bar, right, extremely unexpectedly, you have an epiphany and the song completely shifts. One thing that we really need to mention, of course, is Randall Monroe's XKCD.
2: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. Best webcomic. I remember I thought about making a webcomic once and then I found XKCD and I was like, I don't need to. It's done. (laughs) Thank you, Randall.
2: (laughs) He's also, by the way,
1: he's also a nice person. Not in person, he surprised. he is really nice. Yeah, I believe that. And he is uh, attentive and friendly and actually notices social cues, right? Which is in some ways a, a low bar for sometimes <laughs> things you expect of, of other people either in the industry or artists or what have you. And his comic is called a comic of, what is it? Uh, mathematics, Romance and Language or something and sarcasm. Right. And that romance, right? He's actually paying attention not just to the Romance meaning love, but romance meaning grand emotion and passion. We bring so much passion to these relationships with ourselves and our computers and with other people that we're trying to like make software with. And his attention to that, I think, is part of what makes SKCD so amazing and yeah. so relatable.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that makes it also more broadly relatable. Talking about the best way to write a function or compose a class, like, maybe more technical or more specific than most people can engage with. But like to talk about the satisfaction that comes with that or, you know, other like superhuman emotions associated with, you know, what we bring to our jobs. That's something that's more broadly accessible that I think something like the art of Python can help people with.
1: Also, I'm just going to say on a side note that it's like he's become the bard who sings back to us about our lives online As online people, right? Like the Someone is Wrong on the Internet comic, for instance. Yeah, definitely. The Art of Python is going to happen on May 3rd in Cleveland as part of PyCon North America. If you are listening to this and it's not May 3rd yet, please consider coming.
0: (laughs) And if it it has happened, are there going to be videos?
1: That's my hope. And (laughs) also, Bang Bang Con, exclamation point, exclamation point con, will be in New York City, May 11th and 12th. And they will probably also have some arts performances. And I hope that I get to see it. And I hope that a lot of the listeners here, anybody who's vaguely in the New York area could, could come. And if you run a conference, please consider just going ahead and stealing some language from the call for proposals for Art of Python. I would love for the people who make plays and music and dance performances and so on to actually be able to reuse them at other conferences just like people who give more ordinary talks can.
0: Sure, yeah. Make it open source. <laughs> <laughs> Put in a gist.
1: I am pretty cool. sure that the all of the text on us.pycon.org is under an open license. so. <laughs> I think (laughs) I I, I could be wrong, though. But in any case, I I should mention that, yes, people have my permission to reuse those uh, CFPs.
0: Well, it was wonderful having you on again. Thank you Uh, so much. It's been too long. (laughs)
2: we'll have to have you on again
1: soon I appreciated the opportunity thank you so much
0: follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going like what you hear? give us a five star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole and never miss an episode subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast on behalf of our producer extraordinaire William Jeffries and our amazing host Michael Nunez who's out being a dad and me your host Dave Anderson thanks for listening to the rabbit hole